Hello, and welcome back to the Talking Serverless Podcast. This is your co-host, Josh Proto, and today I have the pleasure to be joined by Paul Chin Jr., who is Head of Developer Relationships at Begin.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, Paul. Hey, thank you so much, Josh. Really appreciate being here. You're super welcome. It's a, it's a typical, beautiful, cloudy day in Portland where I'm at, and I'd like to start off the way I usually like to start off with our guests. And Paul, I'd love to hear a bit about, you know, your serverless journey. How did you get to be where you are today as head of developer relationships at, be- at begin.com? Was it a crooked road? Was it a, was it a straight shoot? Um, what was it? It's probably about as around the world as you could get. Uh, I've done a great number of things. And then one day I decided I was going to learn how to write JavaScript. So, um, I started off with Node bots. Uh, people have never used those before. It's where you actually just use Node.js and control like hardware for Arduinos and stuff. I had never done any of it. I don't know, watched some YouTube videos. I joined my local community and I just became super enamored with web development and the open source movements that I was seeing. And so after a couple of years of just practicing on my own, I was able to get a job. Um, with a enterprise consulting company. And there I learned a whole lot about cloud. But what's funny is I got started all of this in like 2015. So this was right when serverless was just kind of emerging. And that's what I learned on coming into the industry. So I'm about as cloud native as you get. And I've been thinking about it. I've been a serverless developer longer than I've been any other kind of stack, right? And um, what's interesting in my role at Begin is giving new developers and old developers the tools that they need to get onto the like the serverless journey. And so it's been really, really interesting learning how things kind of used to be done and were done even five years ago and just how different it is now. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing to hear that, you know, as you're saying, as cloud native as it gets. You most of your career has been in this cloud as a cloud serverless developer. That's very similar to what I've seen as sort of like um, a lot of people that we have our, at our team at Serverless Guru or other guests that we've had. Um, really interesting to have that cloud native experience. Have you have you only ever worked sort of in that in that tech area as cloud, or are you also bringing some other experiences uh, from 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 past work? I'm always fascinated to see you know how those things weave together. Sure. I mean, I've always been like a business nerd kind of growing up. Um, I worked in consulting and I worked at um, not technology startups, but other startups uh, in the entrepreneur realm and kind of like learning how to create side hustles and just staying uh, wherever I think the business opportunities could be. Uh, and that's what led me to just learning how to develop web applications from scratch because I kept seeing more and more opportunity and these tools becoming cheaper and cheaper uh, and easier and easier to run. So when I first started learning, uh, I just had nothing but a, a Chromebook and I took it to my local meetup and they showed me how to get uh, Ubuntu running on it. And then I was a node developer all of a sudden, like I didn't need a super fancy MacBook. Um, I didn't need to go through four years of C++. I had a Chromebook and a browser, and I was good to go. 
And part of that is really what kept me going. And I was like, oh, we can learn anything super fast. Um, if you put the time into it, the resources are there, the community is there. And part of the reason that I went into developer relations is to continue creating those, those interactions in the community because it really did change my life. Uh, I was, I found like a brand new career. It's always exciting. There's things that are always happening. And, um, a lot of the skills that I brought with me to this industry, I guess would be more of the, the, the people skills, the ability to take stories and transform the stories and, and make those relevant because I've learned that software really is a language art, right? We write in different languages to create this item that we need. And in that way, uh, my previous training in business and in technical writing and just writing in general has really prepared me to be a software developer. Amazing. I think, you know, you heard it here first, folks, on the Talking Serverless podcast, software is a language art. Uh, I think that's a beautiful thing to, uh, beautiful thing to say in a really articulate way to sort of merge things together because, you know, one thing I think we, we see, and I think you totally see as your role, the developer advocate is that, you know, we're not just sort of talking at the computer and hoping that it never has any, uh, any impact for the rest of the team or the rest of the business. It's for some certain goal and it's usually some certain human goal. Um, and so being able to communicate to the technology and be able to communicate about and around the technology is also essential. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about, you know, what does it mean to be head of developer relations? You know, that term developer re relations uh, potentially could be quite, quite broad. And I'd love to hear a bit about, you know, how you approach it, how you see and how you see it can be sort of used or done like most effectively or at least most rewarding in your experience. Sure. Um, what's funny is uh, I didn't really even know that this type of role uh, was out there when I first started learning how to code. I thought I was going to be, you know, uh building websites every single day uh, and just writing in the code itself. But it turns out that um, the same path that I had to take of learning and learning and learning is something that will never stop either. So there has to be folks out there who are willing to teach and get involved with users of whatever product it is that you're making. Um, you have to learn about them, where do they come from, what do they uh, like about your product, and like what really makes it unique and fun for them. And we take that feedback and we're able to, you know, make the service even better. But it, it all really started for me uh, mostly as like a, a little joke, like, haha, I can make jokes now. Uh, and the JavaScript community at large really enjoyed the jokes. And I just kept rolling with that. The big thing, and I guess the highlight of my career, is that I've gotten here because of a deep, fanatical obsession with Nicolas Cage. Um, I originally was, you know, teaching myself all this new stuff. And I had nowhere to really apply it because I wasn't working in the industry at the time. So I just made up my own conference talks, and they were all about praising Nicolas Cage as the true internet god. 
And it really took off. I was building CRUD apps. I was building WebSocket apps. I was building cloud apps. I mean, it was all kinds of stuff. I had different narratives for different movies and how they would relate to the technology. I would go and present them at like AWS days or go and present them as part of like a GCP thing or just in general with the consulting. And again, coming back to this power of storytelling and this power of narrative uh, has really helped bring technology that is normally really like stuffy and boring and make it more relatable. For example, <laughs> are you familiar with the AWS step functions? Well, yes, that I definitely am. Yeah. So step functions are super cool. And when they first came out, it was, you know, part of my job to understand what it is, what the service meant, and how the customers can use it. And, you know, if you go through the mechanics of a state machine, it's like really boring. I like, I'm, I'm sure somebody really loves the mechanics of a state machine, but it's hard to get people excited about a service um, with just that. So what I did was I created my own state machine that was the National Treasure movie. And I went through different steps of the heist and mapped them to individual Lambda functions uh, with different triggers and different events so that it could walk through the movie as a step function itself. And that was what I would go and present. And it gave people a hands-on look and an actual usage that they might remember a little bit better than some comp sci theory. That's absolutely amazing. You know, guests, I mute my mic while the while the uh, while our partners and our guests are talking, and so uh, I've just been laughing this entire time because you know Nicolas Cage, hilarious as I'm sure we're all sort of aware of, but also just like the um, the fact that you know Paul that you're able to sort of you know really leverage the strength of storytelling uh, in order to communicate and educate others who you know. Some people do get really, really excited on the mechanics of a state machine, uh, but there's probably a lot of people who don't. And the fact that you're able to communicate it this way, you're really broadening that the accessibility, I would say, of this information, of this technology to a whole group of people that maybe thought it was out of reach or they were never interested. And I think that's pretty, pretty darn fascinating. Um, would you sort of say like this, this approach is one of your cornerstone modalities of uh, developer advocacy? In that sort of way, or is this sort of just a very effective way that you found to to communicate these ideas? This was a really organic way that I found uh, to get folks interested and to get folks really excited about new tech. And I think that it's it may not work for everybody, certainly, but for me, uh, the the importance of making technology accessible is huge to me because I grew up uh, not really having uh, technology around all the time. Eventually in high school, I did get a computer and it was really cool. And I was able to like learn the ropes of the internet as it were, but I never thought I could program and I never thought I had enough power and agency to create the things that were on my screen because I thought, well, I'm no good at math. And uh, you know, my parents, can't get me the the latest and greatest computer and you know uh my friends who are doing programming they're they're way beyond me in terms of intellect and skill and so for the longest time i thought i couldn't do it just turns out you got to wait 20 years and, and the tools will come down to everybody 
but we're, you know, we're not done yet. The whole low code, no code movement is kind of just getting started. And I think there's a huge opportunity with more tools that are easier to use that can bring things as complex as AWS down to a team of two people. And they get the same scale, the same um, large scalable technologies as a Fortune 500 company with 200 devs. I've seen the exact same system architectures on a two-person team and a 200-person team. And I think that's amazing right now. I think that's something that also consistently blows my mind about about serverless and all these new tools that are coming out in order to in order to make that possible um, is really lowering the bar to entry for a lot of complex uh, technological solutions. Uh, Paul, do you have any tools that you you know that you work with or work on that you would sort of sort of suggest and want to sort of talk about today? Oh yeah, uh, I'm here to tell you loud and proud that uh, the OpenJSF Architect project is a great way to get started with serverless. Um, if if folks aren't familiar with it, you can go to arc.codes, A-R-C dot C-O-D-E-S. And uh, what it is is a open source framework for building and deploying Lambda functions. And it's um, kind of the reason I came on the show. Um, I guess, could you tell them about the, the, the listener poll? Yes, no, absolutely. And one of the reasons why we, you know, Talkie Serverless really wanted to get Paul on and Paul reached out, which I'm very grateful for, you know, as we're going to probably talk about architect a bit, you know, for the 40% of people who are saying that architect isn't like their, their, uh, their IAC tool of choice, or for like the 12% of people who listen to this podcast that don't know what architect is, um, you know, Paul's going to give a little, little rundown of the technology. But we were even surprised uh, as a as a group of people that predominantly, you know, so we sort of play with all the different tools. Uh, but we we were surprised to see that Architect has this humongous community support, and we just want to make more people aware of this because since this poll that we did for Talkie Serverless, um, we start pl- we've started to play around with it more and are just uh, really enthused just with the possibilities. So I'm really happy to have Paul on today to sort of talk about it. And ask him some questions about it and get, get his opinion, uh, on some choices. Cause IAC tools are, is a tricky subject. Or at least when you're talking to clients who are at a different, who are in, in many different areas of their serverless journey and are trying to sort of convince teams and organizations we should use this as an institutional choice. Uh, I'm interested to hear how Paul also approaches those things. Yeah. One of the amazing things that I learned from, uh, corporate consulting is that, um, you're either going to run into people who really love just adopting new things and really just try churning through stuff, which has its own pros and cons. And the folks who are like, I'm never giving up my tools. Like they, these are the tools I use and, and I'm not switching. Uh, and those are all fine, but I think that there's so many more new developers coming online now and so many more use cases uh, just appearing in the business world that there's not going to be just one way to do things. There's going to be multiple ways to do things. And so what Architect does is really focus on a few core things that AWS does to help web developers like make the software um, for most of 
kinds of use cases that your apps are going to need. You're going to need a database. You're going to need some kind of way to call it with uh, HTTP. And then you're going to need your functions. And Architect is built around the idea that we have a few awesome services and then you put them together uh, in a way where when they deploy, it'll be speedy. And when they get called, it'll be speedy. Um, and then take away a lot of the extra work that comes around service discovery of all of these ephemerate tools and then, then all your resources. Depending on where they're at, Architect will help do the lookups for the name of the resource at runtime. We've got helper functions and helper libraries that uh, make working with Dynamo easier. And then the biggest thing is local development. One of the things that I never really uh, liked with other serverless frameworks is having to install containers and creating uh, really complex uh, systems on my local machine in order for me to just do some regular development. Um, and I'm not really a huge fan of bouncing back and forth between my IDE and the AWS console. So what Architect has is Sandbox, and it's a full local development server with an in-memory database that mocks DynamoDB, and it will handle all of the API gateway type emulation for your HTTP calls, your event calls, and even like scheduled cron job type calls, uh, queue calls, uh, all inside of Sandbox. So someone can get an ARC project. It's like two commands and you'll be ready to deploy. Um, it's pretty cool because it will like scaffold out uh, folder structures for your functions. Um, it's got the ability to share code um, and managing, you know, managing dependencies inside of your Lambda functions is really crucial for, you know, optimal performance. Thank you so much for that rundown. I know the uh, sort of the local deployments in that aspect has been something that it's it's really hard to find anything else that does that. Uh, and I know when talking to organizations that, you know, they're they're leaving their treasured tool sets and they're like, OK, well, then how do we do this part? And you're like, well, actually, you can't. You're going to have to spin up containers and do that. That's sometimes just like breaks people's minds is trying to understand like like to do that much change all at once is, is very very difficult and as far as like figuring out ways to best sort of you know shepherd people across in this in the serverless world especially as they're trying to you know hit their business use cases hit their business goals um i think you know i really like this aspect of architect there so i'm glad you you're able to just give a good explanation of that yeah i think with architect um even if people wanted to uh, get access to AWS services that aren't part of like the core experience, they still can. Um, it has the ability to be extended with macros. Um, and ultimately, all Architect will do is take your code um, and then spit out cloud formation. Uh, and it's that cloud formation that gives us like the nicely packaged deterministic uh, artifact that makes deploys repeatable and sane every single time you do it. Okay, great. So it is a cloud formation sort of under the hood running. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're actually, uh, I forget what the, the term is, but um, it uses SAM deploy, the serverless application model. 
uses SAM deploy to actually do the do the do the deploy, and it's just standard CloudFormation, uh, which is great for having something to check into your source control and a, a single place to keep an eye on the stack. And recently, I don't know when people are going to listen to this, but super recently, uh, AWS made the announcement that CloudFormation stacks uh, can now have up to 500 resources instead of 200, which means that originally um, some projects could run into a resource limit if you were doing just cloud formation. So you could, you'd have to also rely on the SDK to do some stuff. But now with the resource increase, there's a lot more app you can build this way. Yeah, I know that's been an announcement I've been really excited about and interested to see just what now people are able to do just because, you know, we have this, this resource limit increase, um, and that sort of thing. And, you know, I'd love to get, I'd love to get your answer to this question because it's something I've heard, I've heard a couple times. And, you know, you're, you're talking to an organization, maybe it's their head of engineering or their lead architect, and you're talking about, uh, your IAC tools. Sort of like comparing, like, SAM to architect. If, if they're saying, if they're coming to you and saying, I understand that, you know, this should save me time, or it's going to abstract some of my, my needed knowledge of cloud formation, but how much time does this really save? How would you answer that question? Do you, is there, is there metrics that Architect sort of has for this? Or um, I'm interested to hear about that. Yeah, we can deploy super quick speeds. I don't know what the exact numbers are. Uh, I can never remember. I can never remember them. But the difference with using an Architect is that it's purpose-built for web applications. So if you're looking for uh, a solution that would also include some legacy containers like Right now, uh, we're working on a proxy, or actually the proxy is out. Um, right now, we've got a great solution for folks that also have like sort of mixed workloads where they've got some stuff in containers and they have some old legacy servers running. Um, you can build an ARC API sort of in front of it and then proxy all the other routes that don't directly go to the ARC app. Um, and in terms of like time that you would save, I would say that it's the time of not having to bounce back between the console and your IDE uh, for that local development experience. Um, it also saves time on some of the conventions that we just sort of have in place where um, we want to make sure that, you know, your dependencies are split up properly. We want to make sure um, that your routes are like clear and defined. Um, if you look at an arc, uh, manifest, we call it the app.arc file. It's just straight text. Um, architect has a parser underneath of it that will take that arc file and that single arc file kind of tells the story, as it were, of the entire app. It's hard to describe on, uh, on an audio podcast, but you basically have these top level pragmas where you can define your resources. HTTP endpoints, uh, event functions, scheduled functions, DynamoDB tables, uh, WebSocket connections, all of that get put down as like single line, not really caring about pulling out a ruler to measure YAML simplicity. So when you're building out a new project, 
you can init one really quickly with all the routes that you want and then just start iterating over it locally and you get a much faster development cycle. Um, I don't know how much faster that would be, but in general, the the less times you have to bounce back and forth, um, the faster you will be. Absolutely. Like, especially if you can, at least maybe it's just, you know, my mental ineptitude, but the amount of context switching that one has to do can sometimes just be such a drain and a fatigue on everyone, um, everyone involved. So I think that's always a, always an incredible benefit. Um, I wonder, you know, we have you, we have you here, you know, so much about architect. Is there anything that you could, uh, you know, give us a peek into as far as, you know, what sort of next for architect was architect sort of continuing to work on? You had hinted at the proxy, but oh no, the proxy is already out. We get to be really excited about that. But what else can we be looking forward to? Oh man. So what I love about architect is like the full community that is around it. Um, it's the same community that sort of showed up for that poll, right? Um, folks are working on macros to, uh, include some, uh, auth and, uh, make cognito kind of more, uh, integrated. We've got some folks that are working on being able to enumerate all of the resources that you've got going on before deploy time so that we're going to be more flexible, sort of switching out um, different file paths. For example, coming, um, not quite yet, but uh, we're going to be able to um, redirect, say, uh, one source path that uh, was in there by convention but for whatever reason because of your build step or your bundle step you want it to point it to another folder well um we'll be able to have that kind of flexibility the trade-off is going to be a, a more wordy uh app.arc file but for folks that are looking for that flexibility and that customization then we're going to go ahead and build that in and make sure that people can do that just create a workflow that works for their tooling. And all of that's only coming out because we're getting feedback from the community where the community members are asking for this and asking for that. And it's great. We love all the feedback. In fact, anybody listening right now has reasons why they haven't tried architects. I'd, I'd love to hear about it, you know, at me on Twitter, uh, Paul Chin Jr. And we'd love to know why, uh, why you haven't tried it and if we can make it better. Yeah, give give Paul your thoughts on that. And then if you follow, I, I encourage everyone to follow his Twitter, because I started to and I learned that there is a really fantastic way to, you know, just put together these snack plates, these adult lunchables of like cheese, crackers, <laughs> nuts, fruits. And I need to do that later this week, next time I go to the store. Because, uh, you know, I realized I was missing something huge in my life. So I have to thank you for that, Paul. That's well. right. Uh, on top of the hottest uh, serverless takes, uh, I also really love food. So, <laughs> people, uh, food and keyboards, mechanical keyboards as well. So, if people are interested in either of those two things besides serverless and uh, awesomeness from Architect and Begin, definitely that's, follow me. That's exciting. You know, really, I see that as a, you know, needs to be a second podcast, wine, cheese, serverless, all sort of mixed keyboards all mixed together. Um, but on, on that note, I'm interested to hear maybe a little bit more. You sort of hinted on sort of this, like maybe where this is all going in the future. 
in terms of maybe like no code, low code movement. Um, how, where do you think we are right now in that stage? Do you think these tools like, like architect, uh, that are, you know, really large players, I'd say in serverless, are these sort of the beginning? Is that going to morph into something else or are they going to be a little bit different? Um, really interested in your thoughts. Man, my thoughts on the future, um, are pretty bright. I think that it's going to be even easier to create apps, um, probably within the next two to three years. Um, we're going to see the ability for uh, an architect style application um, with this new proxy method to kind of combine arc apps. So you could imagine one arc app doing one thing and a second one doing another but they can actually kind of talk to each other um, as a real distributed system all running on AWS infrastructure. And you're not managing any of those connections. And that is something that I'm really, really looking forward to. Um, one of the things that I think haven't been used enough uh, is the WebSockets feature. And I gave a whole talk about it at ServerlessConf last year when we were still having conferences. And uh, it was all about WebSockets. It was about creating real-time experiences and doing it serverlessly. So now I didn't have to set up my own Express server or Socket IO server uh, in Nodeland. It was just part of API Gateway, and it lives right alongside my regular REST routes. And I think that's a really cool paradigm, and we use it on Begin in order to send some data back and forth in a nice snappy way. And it gives us just another taste of what serverless could be like in the future. And I do think that the no code, low code movement is, is just beginning. I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface of what people are, are capable of. Uh, we're still thinking even for me now, a couple of years into it where I'm like kind of in this serverless bubble there's somebody who's just like me now getting started now and they're going to hopefully try begin, but they're also going to be using services like glitch and they're also going to be um, trying out code spaces and everything's going to just live in the browser and it's not going backwards anytime soon. I think that'll continue to get beefier and beefier clients um, that can do more and more. And eventually you'll be able to create apps just by like dragging and dropping modules. But underneath of it, it won't be a whole bunch of spaghetti code. It'll be uh, neatly uh, separated components. Well, no, thank you for those thoughts. I know I'm always very passionate about sort of like the future of technology and extra rooms for innovation. So it's always great to hear, you know, when someone is sort of on the ground doing a lot of doing a lot of that in a specific industry, good to see their take on that. Because, you know, there's one thing I know is that I can't think of any like prediction of like 50 years in the future that every that ever turned out to be right, let alone like, you know, 10 years or something like that. So <laughs> if we put all of our practical experience together, maybe we can figure out, you know, a, a likely path of what's going to happen. Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway for the future is that there's going to just be a whole lot more like it's uh, there's going to be more than one cloud. There's always going to be more than one way to do something. And the real innovations are going to come from people who are outside of our industry right now. Someone who hasn't been uh, 
I guess, tainted by the current knowledge. And then they just decide like, oh, I'm just going to do this thing because I can. Like some business analyst is going to pick up, uh, say like, uh, what is uh, Honeycomb, I think is AWS's no code platform. Uh, they're just going to pick it up, uh, start automating some of the forms they have to fill out or data that they're collecting. And then all of a sudden they get a taste of that power. They get a taste, they get a little bit taste of, of what I got a few years ago when I, I made an LED blink with JavaScript. It's like, oh, I can control this now. Like this is now another part of what I can achieve in my life. Um, and they're going to be doing things that we can't even imagine yet. And that's really, really, really exciting for me too. Same. Absolutely. I think it's that, it's that first experience, that taste of what's possible that just uh, sort of excites everyone into developing, developing the world that they want to live in, developing the technologies and tools that, that empower them. And that's always the, uh, and when that barrier of entry is getting lower and lower and lower, like you don't need a PhD in computer science or, you know, I think my, my grandfather was like part of the Air Force computer people for like a long time, just to, just to really not be able to do a whole lot. Uh, but now you, there's no longer needing to, needing to sort of do that in order to, develop tools and systems that bring a lot of value and can create some pretty cool stuff, which is very exciting. Are there any resources that, you know, if people are interested in like starting off like a project with architect, is there sort of like a, like an easy like tutorial place or a, or like a general location they could find like learning resources or tools? You mentioned there's this huge community. Is there anyone who sort of is, is, is well known or uh, around that you would recommend like, Oh, if you really want to do a deep dive, maybe, Begin has a has a place on their site. Yeah, so we've got uh, tons of learning resources. One, the big one is uh, learn.begin.com, and uh, it has got some tutorials on there that will use Architect. The main Architect site, arc.codes, uh, has um, documentation there and some walkthroughs. Um, and I'm trying to work on more example apps and publishing them on Medium and Dev.2 uh, so we can get those out. And we, at Begin, have a ton of example apps. If you uh, want to check out those, they're all in our repo, uh, Begin-Examples, uh, all in their own repo account. Um, where we have examples of using event functions to trigger asynchronous workflows, uh, scheduled jobs, and uh, an OAuth app, a CRUD app, um, and then we have apps with uh, that are ready to go for any of your favorite front ends like Svelte, uh, React, Vue. We, we've got examples for all of those as well at learn.begin.com. Fantastic. I hope, uh, you know, I hope some of the, some of the listeners who either aren't as familiar, if you're part of the 12% that aren't familiar or the 30 to 40% that is not using begin or not using architect as your, as your main tool, uh, definitely give it, give it a try and, uh, compare the benefits. Cause sometimes I think for myself, it can be easy to fall in your own lane and just sort of, you know, like you mentioned the serverless bubble, but I think sometimes there's like framework bubbles or tool bubbles and just thinking like, that's like a dangerous thing if you think that your way is always the best all the time. Uh, it's good to get some disconfirming evidence. So, I definitely suggest you know playing around with 
all the different tools that are available now. I mean, why not? The, the, the cost of doing it is, is a little bit of your time. But I think with each framework that you try, you learn more about the ecosystem in general. You learn more about um, the way you like to work. And if you find a good way to work, then you want to find more pieces in that same pathway. Um, like I'm really, really stoked on dropping my IDE completely. Um, just the idea that I can uh, use GitHub for everything and then go to code spaces and like edit the code right in my browser. Um, when I push a commit, it'll automatically trigger my build and then it'll go straight into staging. And like that kind of a flow, if I'm just like quickly editing stuff inside of the browser, I feel like that would be amazing. So Paul, I know we're I know we're running not quite against time, but heading towards the evening of our of our conversation together for now. Uh, but there's one question I know I really wanted to get your thoughts on and hear about your perspective. Do you think there are times like inherent conflict between uh, like sort of developer experience and like organization goals? And to give some context to this, I'm sort of thinking in situations where you know there's all these institutional bureaucracy or decisions that have been made about you know, we're going to only use SAM, or maybe we're not even serverless yet. And we're and someone has sort of made a decision about about how to go. Um, how do you go about approaching and sort of talking to someone when, you know, they sort of have maybe a, a sort of a different viewpoint as far as like, well, we need to do this because for the organization or for the business that maybe isn't as developer focused. Do you think of that if you're always sort of serving the developer experience? Does that in your experience, do you see that tend to you know, I don't know, increase productivity, more efficiency, uh, lower, lower cycles, lower dev cycles, and that sort of thing. Um, just general, interested in your thoughts on that process. I would say that uh, if you've been working in cloud for a while, either helping your company kind of shift off on-prem, move out of, you know, dedicated servers and and into more of the cloud services space, then you're very familiar with the process of migration. Then, uh, you know, you always have this inertia that you have to overcome as, as an organization. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not a technology problem ever. It's a, it's uh, communication problems between people. And I would say that building serverlessly and building with these new um, services is going to be more beneficial for your actual developers in terms of their experience because they're going to get more control over their target deploys while also not having to worry about the really annoying things about that control. So if I know I'm going to deploy uh, an application that's got both Node and Python, I can do that. Um, the functions are separate and the runtimes are separate, but they'll still work together through, you know, the single uh, API gateway calls that they get. And that's one of the, that's just one of the cool things uh, and use cases that I don't think people are uh, experimenting with at a huge scale yet. It's like mixing and matching runtimes, I think is a really cool way uh, to check out serverless. Absolutely. That is really unique. Um, I don't think, you know, I've, I've at least experimented with that too much. Maybe some members of my team have, but as you know, as serverless continues, I think to grow in popularity and people are using it more, hopefully we'll be able to get more of that information and data 
aggregated within the community and that it can it can be shared because there's a lot of a lot of really interesting things that I think we will know when we have that level of level of knowledge and that level of information around. Um, you know, Paul, I'd also like to ask, you know, is there anything else that you're sort of uh, that you're sort of working on that you like to share sort of outside of architect or, or begin or maybe you're just 100 uh, percent all in? I think, you know, you definitely seem super passionate about everything you're doing um, <laughs> in, in that sort of way. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. And then, you know, people want to um, sort of follow, follow you and follow architect where where could they do that? So two parts. Yeah, they should definitely check out architect. Uh, arc.codes. I got to mention it a million times because I was originally just using it, uh, as a community member because I was like, how, what is this framework? Cause for the longest time I was just using serverless framework because it was, uh, the first one that I just sort of ran into. Um, and then when I found architect, I really enjoyed it. And what I did was start posting questions on our architect Slack. Um, and so y'all can uh, Google and find the, the architect Slack and join that and ask your questions because there will be folks there to answer. Um, a lot of times you join these Slacks and you come in and ask a question. It's just nothing but people asking questions. So uh, it sort of feels empty, but not in the architect Slack. In the architect Slack, um, we take the time to really uh, help folks and and get honest feedback. So that's the reason this. I think that the um, project in general has been so successful and popular. And there's thousands of production apps using it right now. That's great. Yeah. No. Please, everyone, uh, take some time and visit visit Art Codes, uh, and we will put sort of these links that that Paul has been mentioning in the in the show notes and in the description, so everyone can easily access that. And then finally, is there anything extra or special that you've been working on uh, that you'd sort of like to share for a bit, Paul? Yeah, currently uh, working on the uh, Nicolas Cage angle again. Uh, I really want to have a a more complex starter app uh, that people can use as a base. I just um, put out a first part of a blog series on Dev.2 about creating a login from scratch. And at first you might be thinking, why would you do login from scratch? Everyone's got their favorite library. Well, um, part of what makes this industry and this job so great is that we can um, do things in multiple different ways. And I'd never done a login from scratch before where like you kind of take the request and, and, and take, take the password and you have to hash it and then salt it and all that stuff. I had never really done that before, and uh, I'd always left it up to another library. But then being able to uh, see it and do it uh, so effortlessly uh, on serverless was really cool. It was a good exercise. And so I'm writing up about it uh, and publishing those, and hopefully it will end with a big Nicolas Cage surprise piece. So stay tuned for that. That's amazing. I'm excited. I was going to ask earlier, you know, if you had any new, you know, new Nicolas Cage themed, uh, you know, learning resources in the works or planned. So I'm just delighted to hear that you do. Um, so <laughs> I, I will personally be looking out for that. And I hope uh, hope all of our listeners will be, too. Um, so with that, uh, if you don't have anything else you'd like to share, uh, I'll sort of leave it to you. Uh, maybe mention your your what's your Twitter handle again if people want to follow you. Yeah. Uh, 
You can follow me at Paul Chin Jr. P A P A U L C H I N J R uh, on Twitter, and you can use the hashtag Praise Cage when you're feeling like uh, the Lord, our, our single one true God of the Internet, is looking down upon you and blessing your projects. Beautiful. I will be sure to do that. Um, thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you so much, Paul, for for joining on today and reaching out to us. Um, I really enjoyed our time together, and I'm sure our listeners have too. And to all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for jumping on again. Um, and we're looking forward to the next time so we can all chat. So thank you so much. And this is Josh Proto from Talking Serverless signing off.